Welcome to Modern Aikidoist Podcast. This podcast is being posted on the Rogue Warrior TV channel. My sincere thanks to Lenny Sly for promoting this on his channel. If you like what you hear, there are many more podcasts on my Spirit Aikido channel with new episodes every couple of days. I invite you to go check it out. I'd also like to express my humble thanks and appreciation for all the great comments I have received, particularly recently. As my audience has grown, it is very clear that there are very experienced and sophisticated people listening. Thank you very much for the compliments about the podcast. Now on with the show. This episode is on a topic I've been thinking on for some time. It has taken me a while to assemble my many thoughts in a way which puts the crucial points together. There is a lot to break down when it comes to organizations, so settle in and prepare yourself for some sobering perspective. Let me start by saying that I have a lot of experience with groups of all sizes. I've either experienced political turmoil of just about any kind you can imagine, or seen it play out firsthand. I'm not talking about a handful of groups and organizations here. I'm talking easily several dozen or more. My involvement has been on many levels, usually working behind the scenes at the organizational and planning level. I've even held several different officer positions in a worldwide nonprofit organization and had to act as a mediator many times to help resolve sticky political issues. The reason I wind up doing these things is that I have a mind for planning an organization and usually get invited to participate at that level. Sometimes I have gotten stuck with it because leadership was something no one else wanted to do or was cut out for. It's fair to say that I've been around more than a block or two. Rather, I've seen a great deal of the whole town when it comes to seeing how groups form, how they operate and function, a great variety of the turmoil they experience, and how they meet their ends. It is this experience that I've used to examine how Aikido organizations operate, and I've gotten to see behind the scenes to a number of them. Granted, I've not looked into all of them, but I feel I've seen enough to get a good handle on most of the common problems. I can say confidently that I can spot red flags with behaviors that most people wouldn't give a second thought to. This includes the Aikido organization I was in and earned my rank through. I resigned without hesitation when I realized how toxic it really was under the surface. Like many problems, members will often hide or obscure them out of a sense of loyalty and to keep a level of peace among the group. This is a short-term solution which is no solution at all. These problems don't go away by themselves and almost always escalate until they cannot be contained anymore and then they explode. Since how organizations function, how they are structured, and how they operate is interesting to me, I quietly observe as many as I can, if even from a distance. The few I've been closer to have provided even more insights, and I have yet to see one which does not display at least a moderate level of dysfunction. I don't say this because I am hypersensitive to bad politics. The reality is that highly toxic politics are far more the norm with groups of all kinds than anyone wants to admit. The beauty of being independent is that I have the freedom to speak the truth. I can share my honest thoughts and views without being concerned whether I will get promoted again or thrown out of an organization. These are very real concerns for people and I can understand them. I've been in that position and I've found it extremely uncomfortable. I refuse to cover for someone's bad behavior. Having separated myself from these situations, I can tell you it is far more liberating than you probably imagine. In fact, it's the best thing to ever happen to my Aikido, and I don't make that statement lightly. Seriously, it gave me freedom to make my Aikido far better than it ever was. My seniors were talented, and I had things to learn from them, but branching out and working with outside instructors and influences from other Aikido and other arts was incredibly productive. To be fair, my former Shihan encouraged this anyway, so it's not like I was locked up in his basement or anything. 
However, I did feel palpable pressure against implementing new things that I discovered without his prior approval. This was out of respect, and respect is a good thing. Given that I only saw him twice a year, that was a pretty severe bottleneck. Even when we would meet, there was very little time, if any, for me to share what I had learned in order to get his approval. The few things I was able to present met with his approval, but the process was much slower than I prefer. I like attacking innovation and making progress in a timely fashion. Doing so provides good energy and momentum. Slogging through a bureaucracy drives me crazy, as I realize just how counterproductive it is. It throws cold water on the fire of passion and interest. This is what organizations tend to do by their very nature, and it is what organizations tend to be, rigid and unresponsive. The world is constantly changing and evolving. An individual can adapt and change very quickly if he has a mind to, and a small group can do so as well. The reason is that it is possible for a few people to arrive at an agreement quickly and take action without a lot of meetings, arguing, and overhead. They don't require approval or permission to set their plans, make changes, take action, and get results. The bigger an organization gets, the more people and agendas come into play. Why? Because of human nature. People want to know what is going on, and more importantly, give their input and grant their permission. Failing to do so makes them feel uninvolved, and that is totally understandable. If you are part of a group and they make a decision without asking you, you would feel hurt. I know I have when it's happened to me. It's worse when a group takes action without involving their leader, who is not only hurt, but he also has the power to punish those who left him out of the process. Here is where we get into leadership models. Leadership is a method. Many leaders falsely believe that their job is to command, guide, and lead by making all the decisions themselves. Their team is like arms and legs who they command to move at their will. An arm or a leg would never deem to move all on its own without the head having issued the command. One of the biggest innovations in leadership came about after World War I. The Prussian military tradition always used the kind of leadership I just described. The German army was built on this Prussian tradition. That leadership model was what you would envision military chain of command working like. The general issues a command that his army shall attack, then the colonel elaborates on where the offensive is going to happen. The major commands his troops to attack a specific region, then the captain tells his smaller force which town or such to attack. The lieutenant provides details for his squads on exactly how to attack the target he was provided, and so forth down to the sergeants and corporals. World War I proved that this method was clumsy and did not provide the invaluable feedback up the chain of command. That was, when experienced leaders of all levels in the field came across an opportunity, they were not able to capitalize on them. Their experience and insights were largely wasted because they were not given any latitude on how to do their job. To use a modern term, they were being micromanaged. The general staff of the German army recognized this and designed an entirely new way of approaching leadership. They merely provided a goal for the particular division, company, or unit, and gave the leaders permission to use all their creativity to achieve it. Then, they got out of their way. The only thing that mattered was the result, which was measured by a scale of their success. They knew that unit commanders cared about the lives of their men and their precious equipment and would make the best decisions possible to achieve victory while risking the fewest lives. This approach worked brilliantly, and it was so successful that other armies adopted it once they realized how well it worked. For this leadership model to work, leaders have to give up a great deal of their control. This takes discipline, trust, and most of all, letting go of your own ego and the desire to micromanage. 
Of course, those junior leaders you hand control to must be well-trained and capable of accomplishing the tasks that you give them. That is your responsibility as a leader, to adequately prepare them through the training you put them through. You must build them up to be ready to do this. If you can never let go of your ego and admit that they are ready, the fallback will be to constantly tell them exactly what to do. At that point, you have fallen back to the old model of leadership, which works poorly. The crucial factor is trust. Take a look at the leadership model in your dojo or organization. What is the level of trust there? What level of creativity and imagination exists with your instructors? It may not be obvious, and it can be difficult to tell. I can usually tell pretty quickly. Here are some things to look for. How often are you shown new things from outside sources? These may be techniques from other arts or instructors outside your organization or dojo. How often do the way you do techniques get changed in any significant ways? These improvements should happen on a regular basis. Beware of the ego trap of thinking that what you are shown is so good that it doesn't need any improvements. The minute someone makes you believe that the techniques they show are perfect or cannot be done better, they are probably being held captive by their own ego. Are you shown different variations of a technique, or are you shown the one and only true way to do it? How often have the test criteria changed or evolved? How often have you heard vague or confusing answers to straightforward questions? How often do you see Q-tests administered by someone below Shihan level? Shihan is usually the head of an organization. How often do you see newer black belts and respected seniors guiding classes or teaching at all? How often do you see instructors building up students as opposed to tearing them down? How often have you seen an instructor treat a junior instructor more like an equal than an inferior? I could go on like this for probably an hour. You can observe all these things with merely an eye for whether you spot trust or you spot a lack of trust. Most people are observant and empathic enough to accurately surmise whether a leader trusts others under him or he doesn't. It doesn't take a laundry list of qualifiers to do so. Use your eyes, ears, and instincts. You will come up with your own list of examples why you feel your instructor or seniors trust your judgment or they don't. If you don't feel this trust is being built in your group, something is wrong. There are many other things which can be wrong with an organization, but I'd say that this is a common one and can be quite serious. Even if it's not, having trust issues will negatively affect your group's culture. The group will not achieve its potential and its students will always feel inhibited. Chances are students will be easily drawn into quitting their training because they find the experience unsatisfying. It is my observation that martial arts dojos and organizations believe that promoting students quickly is what creates satisfaction and they are partially right. They focus on making sure people get promoted on schedule so they can keep the students' interest and attention. I've seen many students get frustrated when they feel they should be promoted and they don't get scheduled to test. I admit I went through the same thing in Q ranking. Q ranks are ranks below black belt. It wasn't really that I felt I wanted the next belt as much as I felt I must be doing something wrong that my testing was not forthcoming. Let me explain that. I took my training quite seriously. I wasn't there to while away time or get exercise. I really wanted to learn Aikido and I wanted to be good at it. I still do. When my testing dates came and went without hearing about being scheduled, I figured I must be missing something or that I was being a bad student. I fell into the mind trap of my testing, although not because of my own selfishness or desire to wear a darker colored belt. I also found later that my instructor never lacked any faith in my abilities. He just didn't prioritize testing and often let test dates slip through the cracks. 
Fortunately, I was able to keep my frustrations in check with what appeared to be my lack of progress and stay focused on making my Aikido as good as it could be. But I admit I did question my efforts because of it, and it was frustrating. I was frustrated in myself, not in my instructor. That's just the Q ranks. These frustrations don't hold a candle to what goes on with Udancha ranks, which are all the black belt ranks. The politics behind Udancha ranks are more often than not downright appalling. Attaining Shodan or black belt is a very special event and I think it is helpful for a martial artist. Although every test and achievement means something to the student, earning a black belt is an important threshold for a martial artist to pass through. Of course, you can be extremely competent and have no official rank or belt color whatsoever, but granting someone the achievement gives them the approval of their skills, both for themselves and for others to see. Human beings are social creatures and these gestures are not merely cosmetic. There is a reason humans have their rituals, and they do mean something. It's easy to go overboard with them, though, but there is something lacking when they are removed entirely. I don't feel Udancha ranks are relevant the way the black belt is. More often than not, these are political in nature and people tend to pursue them for their own sake. Their skills and abilities take a backseat to the keister kissing and subservience which is expected to get the next cookie, or rather, rank. In essence, this is how the old-school micromanaging leadership model is cemented into place, through political maneuvering. Do what Shihan says, or you won't get promoted. Don't act independently or show your own initiative, or your promotion may be in jeopardy. It's all about control and has nothing whatsoever to do with the student's skill in Aikido. I feel Udancha ranks are far more detrimental than they are productive to the art. At most, I can see a case for Nidan and Sandan, which is second and third degree black belt ranks, but even those are often fraught with poor politics. Seeing lesser deserving students promoted ahead of you can cause unnecessary political strife and jealousy. I'm sure everyone has seen this play out. Are Udancha ranks helpful or necessary to develop martial arts skills? I submit that the answer is no. It starts the mind down a bad path which many are tempted to go because that's the structure presented to them. Why would a student believe he was presented with a false path? He trusts his instructor and organization to provide him with a healthy path to excellence and follows the lead that he has provided. Why lead a student to a bad place? The answer is that many instructors are doing merely as they were taught. It's not as though they are evil or egotistical, although some definitely are. You could look at it as like a chain. A father is an alcoholic and abusive. He gets drunk and beats his wife and son, and this happens on a regular basis. The son grows up in this environment and becomes an abusive alcoholic himself. He beats his own wife, and when he gets drunk, when they have a child, beats the child. That child grows up, and the cycle continues, each son being a link in the chain. Of course, it's not 100%, but the rate is extremely high. It is natural to inherit behaviors we are raised in, and martial arts are no different. Whether it is good, mediocre, poor, or outright toxic behavior, it's a pattern which we continue. Sometimes the chain is good when we pass along good teachings and habits. Often, though, the chain is bad when we pass along myths and falsehoods, a few of which I've covered in previous podcasts. For good or for bad, the chain is very strong. I think each link in the chain must be examined, and if it's bad or toxic, broken and replaced with a good one. We must stop passing along bad teachings, habits, and information. It's a big job because of our very nature. We respect those who taught us and what they taught us. Whenever I'm faced with examining and potentially rejecting a link in the chain, I give it a great deal of thought. That link, good or bad, got me to where I am today. 
Can I really break it? The question is, can I do better? If the answer is yes, then I break it and replace it with a better one. Your ego will often tell you that there is no better one, that a superior method does not exist. It is either the ego or ignorance which is saying that, and either will stand in the way of excellence and mastery. On the subject of excellence, I'll add this question to the list I posed previously. How comfortable would your instructor or shihan be to a student who proved to be more skilled or competent than they themselves are? Would such a student be welcomed in the group or marginalized? You may have to speculate on your answer as you've probably not seen it. If you have seen it, does your instructor praise and endorse the student openly and without hesitation? Or does he view that that student is a threat whose abilities appear to undermine his respect and authority in the group? I've seen this play out many times. Most often, the student leaves to start a group of his own or some political maneuverings go on which basically urge him out of the group. It is often made to look to the group that something happened, but they really don't know what it was. No one wants to say anything for fear of breaking the uncomfortable silence with an even more uncomfortable conversation. The skilled student poses a dilemma, both for the senior instructor who is now not the most talented in the group and the student who now wonders if this group has anything more for him. The problem is not the talent level of the instructor and the student. The problem is, is that they are both viewing the situation that one must be the leader and the other a follower. Again, the same old rigid leadership model. A captain who has his lieutenant promoted over his head to say major will likely harbor some resentment over it. I'm sure many Aikido organizations have to dance around these types of situations all the time. Instead, the two could look at it as though they are in a peer group. They are both highly skilled and have valuable insights to offer. Chances are they both have slightly different methods as well as different styles of teaching. Having both in the same group would be tremendously valuable to the students. Why create a rivalry when there doesn't need to be one? Isn't that what Aikido preaches against anyway? I believe this is where Osensei's statement against competition applies. The way I approach this with my students is that I want them to be as good as I am at Aikido and hopefully even better. I want to learn from them, and I do on a regular basis. We are brothers and sisters traveling a path together, and I am eager to welcome them into my peer group when the time comes. I'm delighted that they are there, and do not view them as a threat at all. They are valuable assets. It baffles me how often valuable people with a lot to offer are viewed as threats. When this happens, I see toxic politics at play. Once this poison seed starts growing, it's almost impossible to turn around. Once it grows strong enough, it can never be removed. The group must be dismantled or ridden out until it explodes or implodes. Either way, it's a rough ending. All martial arts organizations seem to be suffering from political problems to one degree or another. I could tell some horror stories of some of the worst examples, but I've yet to see or hear about an organization which has solved these problems. Not to say solutions never happen, they might, but I think they are extremely rare. Resolved political problems are the exception, not the rule. The standard is for an organization to have a shelf life. Some have lasted for a long time, but have turmoil stirring beneath the surface for years and decades. Sooner or later it comes to the surface. We are seeing this play out now with the United States Aikido Federation under Yamada. Another organization, Tenshin Dojo Europe, under Steven Seagal, appears to be stricken with such political turmoil that I doubt it will ever get off the ground. Let me be clear here. I'm not saying that organizations would function properly if it weren't for the poor behavior of the leadership. Of course, poor character can be an issue. What I am suggesting is that it is the very structure of organizations which is dysfunctional. 
The power people wield tends to corrupt even those with good character. An organization can be led by good and non-corrupt people and still not be adaptable or flexible. It can also be stricken with bad politics at lower levels, which creates all kinds of issues. I believe the typical organization model we are all used to is outdated and its failures and weaknesses obvious, just like the old military model which was largely abandoned in favor of a new one. At this point in Aikido and the martial arts, we have not yet adopted a new model and seen it perform. If you measure a group by its performance, such as how the German army did by actually fighting a war, then how would an Aikido organization measure its success? Would it be by how many students it attracted? No. Any group can have large numbers, but turn out students who lack skill. In fact, the larger the organization is, the harder it is to ensure quality. Do you go to McDonald's for the highest quality food? Of course not. Martial arts are the same way. Would you measure the success of an organization by how many high-level Udancha are in it? No. I could call up a bunch of people and tell them I will give them an 8th degree black belt, and my guess is I wouldn't have to call around long before I got 20 or more. Would that mean my organization produced skillful practitioners? Nope. It just meant that I could spread around certificates and put up a facade with nothing behind it. Given that Aikido lacks tangible or objective measurements of skill, I could not even assemble highly skilled instructors and have them spend a few years training high-quality students to have them go start winning tournaments and showing how great their Aikido is. That's how it's done in other martial arts which have some kind of showcase venue for their art. Aikido has no such showcase venue. The result is that the art itself is almost entirely political in nature. Is this good for the art and its evolution? or has it allowed Aikido to languish and decay? I think the answer is the latter. As much as Aikido people tend to decry competition, the lack of real testing of their skills has let the art decay to the point it is today. Shihan and senior level instructors are at the top of the list of those responsible for building Aikido into the future. It is their leadership which guides all of their students. How can students be expected to go outside and around their leadership? I submit to you that they can't not while they are part of that group. What happens when they depart and break out on their own? Do they keep the same chain or do they remove the weak and bad links to make a stronger one? It seems to me they often repeat the same mistakes over again. A new organization is started and before too long it suffers from the same types of turmoil that the old one did. That turmoil rides on the most revered aspect of martial arts, tradition. Is there a better way? Yes, there is. I believe a more open source model is preferred. Open source is a collaborative approach where ideas are flushed out and put forth, with the best ideas coming to the top. An example of this is Linux operating system. Linux dominates the world of networking because it works far better than anything else, yet it is decentralized. This has baffled old school people who believe that rigid leadership is the only way to produce remarkable results. If I were to organize a group, I would abandon Udansha rank entirely. I believe Udancha rank invites political turmoil and does not serve enough practical purpose to justify all the bad things that tend to come with it. Is a hierarchy of senior practitioners necessary? What exact purpose do these ranks serve other than to feed the ego and build prestige? When these get built up too much, people become corrupted and their motives get tainted. There must be a better way to have one's skills and contributions endorsed without risking the dangers of jealousy and overinflated egos perhaps simplifying by having only a black belt rank and then sometime later a teaching certificate would be the way to go. That is simple, elegant, and provides a document should someone wish to start their own school. 
Such an approach would keep the politics to a minimum, in my opinion. The world is advancing and finding better ways. Innovation is appearing in all areas. We must do the same. Aikido won't benefit from the same old model. It needs a new one. After World War I, the standard for how warfare was done was that the armies would dig trenches and fire back and forth from them for weeks, months, or even years. The Germans said, well, that sucks, and went back to the drawing board. They examined everything. Advances in technology helped a bit, but what really made the difference was in how they examined and overhauled their leadership model, tactics, equipment, and methods. The innovations they came up with revolutionized warfare and took huge strides forward in terms of effectiveness. Can you tell me what innovations have revolutionized Aikido and the way it was taught since Osensei's passing? Have we been doing it pretty much the same old way for 50 years now? The Japanese culture is particularly staunch about tradition and does not warm up to change very easily as it is viewed as disrespectful to their seniors. This attitude prohibits innovation. In my opinion, it's about time for such innovations. In fact, I believe they are long overdue. Unfortunately, organizations are the last place you're going to see such innovations come from. It's not purely for lack of interest. I believe organizations couldn't innovate it if they earnestly tried. Politics would stand in the way, as well as a lack of flexibility and creativity created by their very structure. What do you think? Please share your ideas in the comments if you're watching this on YouTube or BitChute, or go to the Facebook group Aikido the Marshall Side and post a comment. I always enjoy hearing from listeners of the show, whether through comments or questions. Thank you all for sharing your interest. Again, my deepest thanks to Lenny Sly for sharing this podcast on his channel. If you like this type of content, please give it a like and come over to my channel and subscribe. Enjoy your training.